This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Was the Constitution pro-slavery? We're continuing our discussion of Randy Barnett's essay on this topic on episode 773 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review where you can. Give it a text review where you can. Leave a comment on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube. By the way, if you want to support the show on YouTube, just click on that little super thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also support the show financially by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Go to the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also click on the shop tab while you're there. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can also buy one of my books. Just go to amazon.com, search for my name, and I've got a lot of books out there. My latest two are Southern Scribblings and the Jeffersonian Tradition. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. As always, send me those show requests. Let me know what you want to hear. And again, this episode and yesterday's episode are based on a listener-generated show request. So I was sent this essay by, uh, in fact, uh, uh, the 10th Amendment Center, Michael Bolden at the 10th Amendment Center. He said, you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. So uh, we started it yesterday. There's a lot to get through in this Randy Barnett essay. Um, I focused yesterday on where I thought he was a little bit off, right? I mean, He's saying we don't need to follow the original Constitution. We need to follow the original Constitution as amended. So it's, it's entirely changing the trajectory of originalism and what that actually means. And I also you know, point out when he does that, you're essentially conceding the field. You know, if, if you're going to argue that we need to follow the Constitution with the 14th Amendment, now I understand the 14th Amendment's there, but that amendment has been distorted. Now again, Randy Barnett would say it wasn't. The way that the Supreme Court has interpreted the 14th Amendment recently is entirely alien in his mind to the way that it was intended to be interpreted. And so essentially he said we have a national government that has complete power over the states. Federalism really doesn't matter anymore. Uh, we have the Bill of Rights that should be incorporated, meaning applied to the states' constitutions, the states themselves. So uh, this is, and, and to Barnett, that's a great thing. We should be focusing on reconstruction of the Republican Party because that is the only way to disarm the left. We conservatives, quote-unquote, created this. Republicans created this. Now, I mentioned the minefield that you're getting into with that because it is a minefield. So what Barnett then does is he says, well, look, all right, so if we're going to say, we're, we're going to separate these things out. I think we need to follow this one, but let's take a look at the founding generation and see if these people really were the monsters that the progressive left make them out to be. And what I mean by that is, let's see if Nicole Hannah-Jones is right. Let's see if these people really were so committed to slavery. Was the United States founded on slavery? Was it this kind of you know, slaveholding uh, monstrosity? And were these people committed anti-slavery people? So then he starts looking at the Constitution as a pro-slavery, anti-slavery document, as we'll get into in this part of the essay. But 
Um, I want to mention that he's going to point out some things, as Sean Valence has done, and he mentions yesterday uh, Sean Valence's book. By the way, Sean Valence is a Marxist. Um, Sean Valence, uh, even when I was in, you know, when I was in graduate school uh, many moons ago, uh, Sean Valence was a well-known Marxist who wrote labor history, and um, I've never found Sean Valence to be a very trustworthy, uh, objective historian. Okay, but so what he's going to do is point out all these different points where we had anti-slavery movements in America. Um, and, of course, to Barnett and even Valence, the Declaration is the founding of America. It's the founding of the United States. I would say that's not true. Um, the United States, even as Jefferson points out, we already had free and independent states. In 1774, look, Patrick Henry was saying Virginia was independent in 1765. Uh, they were already thinking about this idea of you know what the relationship of the Parliament was to the colonies, which 1774 Jefferson calls them states and countries. So all of this was out there. So Barnett continues with this just five months after the Declaration in January of 1777, the Vermont Republic was founded as an independent state. Its constitution declared that all men are born equally free and independent. This language is borrowed from George Mason's draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights that he had written just weeks before Jefferson drafted the Declaration. The Constitution of the Vermont Republic was the first constitution in human history to abolish slavery. Now, um, this is true. I mean, you can say this about Vermont. Uh, and they were borrowing, and look, Jefferson borrowed from George Mason as well. And I think you could say that at this point, 1776, 1777, the language that they were using was in some ways, uh, I mean, well, in many ways, I mean, it was a reflection of the Enlightenment. But it was also, as Jefferson pointed out just a couple of months, a couple of years before the Declaration, based on this very long-standing tradition of the rights of Englishmen. So there's a, there's a conflict here. And again, seeking to understand what these people did. Now, Vermont certainly was leading the way in this, in this regard, and you can't discount that. But it is going to bring up Massachusetts in the next one. And I'm, again, I'm going to talk about action over, over rhetoric because that's important. Because he says this timeline is important. Well, I'm going to talk about action over rhetoric, and I've already done this in a previous podcast, so I'll mention it very briefly. But he says Mason's language was also included in the Massachusetts Constitution. Four years before the Constitution was ratified, in three cases decided between 1781 and 1783, the Massachusetts High Court relied on this language to hold chattel slavery unconstitutional in that state. Now, it's important to note that before this Constitution was ratified in Massachusetts, John Adams had written a pro-slavery Constitution, and it wasn't rejected because of that. And you had Massachusetts fully involved in the institution of slavery, whether it was in the United States or in the Caribbean, which is where you had a lot of absentee landowners, Massachusetts was interested in making money. And when you look at what the laws in Massachusetts would do, slavery was abolished, yes, but they had pretty strict laws on black people in Massachusetts. So there are two separate things going on here. One is race and the other is slavery. So you can certainly say that there was uh, a resistance to slavery in the United States in certain sectors, even in Virginia, you had it. Uh, if you look at the, again, the summary view, uh, Jefferson has some pretty harsh things to say about slavery in that. And they did hope that at some point 
I think, you know, here we are in the 1770s that slavery would eventually die out in what became the United States. But on the other hand, that didn't mean that they were racial egalitarians. And this is where someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones would punch holes in all this stuff because she would say, well, uh, okay, we can, we can say that they were certainly, um, you know, trying to move to end slavery. And of course, Barnett's doing this north-south because he's going to attack Tawny. But these people were also extremely racist. They, they, and was it slavery that created that racism or something else? Was, were these people racist and then slavery fit into that worldview or did slavery create the racism? And then so we thought that in America, all blacks were not capable of things because of slavery. And I mentioned this before. I mean, I talked about this last week with people like Benjamin Rush um, and, and, uh, and Caldwell, who came up with this scientific kind of racism. But, you know, Rush thinking that race was a disease, leprosy caused it. We had all kinds of things going on here. There's, there's some very strange things happening in the in the 18th century in America, 18th and 19th century. So just because these states had actually uh, established uh, an abolition movement, or at least an emancipation, abolition is a little strong, an emancipation movement, because uh, it would take time in many of these states, doesn't mean that they were free or that they were, you know, racial egalitarians. We have to we have to be clear about that because I think that's the part where their commitment to all men are created equal was suspect. Action spoke louder than words. So he says this timeline is important. In 1776, when the United States of America was founded, it wasn't. Uh, we had a 13 free and independent states at that point. We didn't have a U.S. government. Um, and they hadn't styled it anything yet. That was the Articles of Confederation, which wasn't ratified until 1783. So at that point, we had the United States of America. The legal institution of slavery existed in every state in the Union. That is true. Was, he's entirely correct. But by 1787, when the Constitution was being written in Philadelphia, five of these states had abolished or begun to abolish slavery. That is also true. You had, a, you had an abolition movement or an emancipation movement in five states by 1787. But again, what was their commitment to racial egalitarianism or this idea of equality? What was their commitment to it? He's, he's using two things here. He's saying, we have the we have this line uh, from the Declaration, we'll hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, so we're going to have emancipation, but did they really follow through on the all men are created equal? Because these people still weren't equal under the law in places like Massachusetts or Connecticut or even New York. They weren't equal under the law. So, they were getting rid of slavery, but that didn't mean that they believed in the language that we so often cite as this high, lofty, idealistic language, the proposition nation. We didn't believe it. Americans didn't believe that. Not the way that the left would like to hold it, and the way that Randy Barnett is actually portraying it here as well. Then in 1791, the free state of Vermont became the 14th state of the Union, bringing the count to six. In 1799, New York began the process of emancipation by enacting a gradual abolition law. Five years later, New Jersey followed with its own gradual emancipation law, which, of course, they still had slaves in 1865. You see? So even though they're gradually emancipating slaves, they were allowed to do this over time. And I think it took till the early 19th century, I can't remember the exact date, I think the 1830s in New York, for slavery to essentially uh, be eliminated in New York. But it took time. It took time. And, you know, 1799, you go back to 1783 or 1781, actually. 1781 and 
Um, and you look at what was happening in New York. Washington wanted slaves that were confiscated. They returned back to New York. So there's a lot of things that he's leaving out of this story to try to paint a very rosy picture of what egalitarianism, equality meant in New England and the North. During the same summer that the Philadelphia Convention was deliberating over a new constitution, the Articles of Confederation, Congress, sitting in New York, acted an ordinance for the government of the territory of the United States northwest of the River Ohio, properly known as the Northwest Ordinance. Adopted on July 13, 1787, the ordinance contained the following language, quote, There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than in the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. It was this language that the Republicans in Congress copied when drafting the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery in the whole of the United States. Now, notice that they say uh, there is no slavery in the territory. That didn't mean in the states that came into the Union. In fact, the founding generation who wrote this, or the people that wrote it, now Jefferson was a little more strict. I mean, he was clear in 1784 when he wrote his land ordinance. And the next class at McClanahan Academy, by the way, is going to be reading Thomas Jefferson, and I'll get into that. But he was a little more strict about what he thought that meant. This, there was some wiggle room to it. In fact, Illinois, in the 19th century, actually was debating a pro-slavery constitution because there were slaves in Illinois. And so, or at least people had gone into Illinois as slaves. So there were slaves in the Northwest Territory. Um, and it wasn't clear that uh, these states would be free states. They could have had slavery if they wanted it because that was the nature of federalism. So in the territory itself, they could push it out. And this was Virginia that was pursuing this, of course, at least originally. You know, Virginia had given this land to uh, the United States. It had been acquired by Virginia during the American War for Independence. So there was a caveat to that. So he says, thus slavery was abolished in 1787 from a vast area of the United States. It wasn't. He said slaves in those territories. It wasn't abolished. <laughs> and there was still some discussion about it after this point, which included the future states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and about a third of what later became Minnesota. In a sign of the times, the Northwest Ordinance was approved by delegations from every state, including every delegate of every slave state. The only no vote was Peter Yates of New York, one explanation of this vote was provided in a letter to Rufus King by Nathan Dane of Massachusetts, who said that Yates appeared in this case, as in most others, not to understand the subject at all. And then he says, well, true, the Northwest Ordinance contained its own fugitive slave clause, but its wording did not reference slavery explicitly. Instead, it referenced to any person escaping into the same from whom labor or services lawfully claimed in any one of the original states. However, this reference to the original states indicates that, going forward, slavery was assumed to exist only within one of the original states that had not yet abolished it, as opposed to any future state. Now, again, I think he's reading into that there. The original states um, didn't mean that they wouldn't have it later on in these states, but from the original states would mean, as this is territories, from the original states, from the original United States. It's not, there's no forward-looking vision here. We're not going to have some, because there was debate. And in fact, Jefferson was, had, had correspondence about this. People were asking Jefferson about it, and he was silent on it. Jefferson didn't say anything one way or the other. He didn't say, no, we shouldn't have slavery in Illinois. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say anything. Well, that's pretty telling that maybe he would have been okay with it. We don't know. 
So, I mean, this is, again, when you look at the entire record, you're not trying to cherry pick here for political effect, because that's what Barnett is trying to do. And this is where history gets a little dangerous. He says, this is a remarkable amount of progress towards implementing the political theory of the Declaration in a very short period, a mere 11 years. Now, again, the political theory, all men are created equal. This is not... It's not implementing that at all, because if you look at these states, I mean, again, Ohio had exclusionary laws. Illinois had exclusionary laws. These things were not, this was not equality. This was anti-slavery. You have to separate the two out. The lefties will do this all the time, and, and Barnett's falling into this trap where they're just, they're springing it on, and they're just going to say, okay, well, yeah, um, but these people didn't really believe in racial equality. Look at this, 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 and this. So he's saying, look, equality, this means that anti-slavery. We're anti-slavery. So he's trying to make himself pat himself, but we're anti-slavery. Pat us on the back. Yeah, we're good. But at the other, on the other hand, at the end of the day, there were still a lot of things going on here that didn't that showed that these people really weren't committed to all men are created equal. Yes, yet as we all know, this progress was stopped in its tracks. Progress of anti of ending slavery. Okay, historians are generally agreed that what stymied this anti-slavery tide was the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney in 1791. By mechanically separating the cotton fiber from the sticky seeds, which formerly had to be done by hand, the plantation farming of cotton using slave labor became enormously profitable. Later, the invention of the steam engine made it feasible to more cheaply transport cotton north via the Mississippi, as well as along the coast. Well, there's, this is true. I mean, look, the, the, I, the, the way that we could now grow cotton and make money, slavery was a profitable institution. Economically, was it profitable before the cotton gin? Um, it was struggling in tobacco areas as they wore out the soil. This is you know, something that John Taylor talked about in Eritur. You had to have different kinds of farming. So there were certainly discussions about what was happening there. But as you started seeing cotton, and the real profitable pr crop was sugar, and how much money people could make on sugar, that was a, that was a change. So um, certainly it was struggling in the tobacco-producing areas, but where you had uh, cotton and uh, then where you had sugar... Uh, slavery was pretty profitable. But Southerners were also adapting it eventually to other types of situations like iron foundries where you had uh, you know, the very large iron foundries in Richmond and they were doing all kinds of interesting things with labor laws there. For example, they were providing people um, uh, overtime work, uh, overtime pay, right? I mean, there was, there was pay. These people were being paid for some of these things. So slavery was adapting by the middle of the 19th century in all kinds of different environments. This is when you look at pro-slavery ideology. Eventually, it was because they thought by the 1850s this was a future of labor in America, and not just in America but in the world. It's what people could do because it solved the problem of class conflict. You're getting into some of these very interesting debates in the 19th century with this stuff, but that's a whole other story. Prior to these technological developments, when the Constitution was drafted, slavery was widely viewed as an economically dying institution. After technology made plantation cotton farming highly lucrative, for the first time in American America, there arose a pro-slavery ideology that increased in its vehemence over time. This is not true, what he said in the last statement. Technology made, for the first time, a pro-slavery ideology. That's simply not true at all. In fact, you had a pro-slavery ideology as early as the... 17 early 1700s in Massachusetts. And you also saw the growth of pro-slavery ideology in New England when slavery was going through its abolition phase. There were people that were against it there, 
right? So this is New England. This is You had these New England theologians that were very interested in this because they saw what they thought was a problem with this. So pro-slavery ideology was around before you had the mechanization and then, of course, the expansion of plantation agriculture. He says, but what matters for evaluating the original Constitution is not what came soon after it was drafted. What matters is the fact that the Constitution was written before this change occurred. It was written on the cusp of half the states in the Union turning away from slavery and the Northwest Ordinance barring slavery in the territories from which future states would be formed. It was written before the rise of a pro-slavery ideology. Again, it wasn't. Arrested what seemed like an inevitable and rapid progress towards the United States that was fully consistent with the principles officially adopted in the Declaration of Independence. In short, when the Congress was written, Constitution, I'm sorry, when the Constitution was written in 1787, the United States was on the leading edge of the movement to end the worldwide practice of chattel slavery. Now, you could say that yes, there were states that were on the leading edge of this. There's, there's no denying this that they were trying to end slavery. But does that mean that they were living up to the line of in the Declaration, all men are created equal? It doesn't. And again, he's opening himself up to a very serious attack here. By This is like 1776 commission report nonsense. These people weren't, they, they were committed to anti-slavery in, in a limited way over time gradually, but they weren't committed to racial egalitarianism at all. At all. Jim Crow laws were born in the North. They weren't committed to this. Okay. Now, was the he's going to get into, was the Constitution, though, pro-slavery. Then he says this, to be sure, some slaveholders, especially in the deep south, were adamantly insistent on preserving slavery. Especially in the deep south. I mean, not anywhere else. <laughs> um, and even the many who conceded this injustice had deeply self-interested motives to kick the cannabis demise down the road. Much of their wealth was bound up in their slaves. Some of them feared violent retaliation by those persons they had enslaved. That last part is is actually one of the one of the great fears because they could see what was happening in the early 19th century in places like Haiti, and they didn't want that here. And of course, then you get you had other uh, potential insurrections, slave insurrections in you know South Carolina, the Stono Rebellion, uh, which was pretty nasty. You had some other things that happened before this, so they they there was a real fear as to what would happen, and particularly in areas where. The slave population outnumbered the white population tremendously. So what would happen there? Would you have had violent retaliation? How would this have worked? How would you integrate these people into society? And this was always a question that the North never really had to deal with because you're talking about very small numbers of slaves. So all of the back padding, uh, you know, again, and, and you know, chest thumping about, you know, we ended slavery in areas where you had very few slaves and you didn't really have to worry about integration as much. But in those areas you still had some pretty strict laws against black Americans. And so they couldn't vote, for example. Is that, is that equality? They couldn't vote. Uh, you didn't start seeing blacks being able to vote in New England until the 1860s. And then after the Constitution, I'm sorry, after the war was over, you still had states like Connecticut, for example, deny blacks the right to vote. So how, how committed were these people to all men are created equal? They didn't believe it. That's the whole point. But the point here is that at the moment that the Constitution was drafted, these resistors were thought to be on the wrong side of history. They weren't at all. They weren't on the wrong side of history uh, in their own mind. That wasn't the case. And I mean, this is again, this is this is this is a bad statement, ridiculous statement. 
That wasn't true at all. They didn't, people didn't think they were on the wrong side of history. Maybe a few people, but for the most part, they were the dominant force in America. Of course, in the long run, they were on the wrong side of history, thanks in part to how the Constitution was worded. So then he gets into um, the Constitution as slave, pro-slavery or anti-slavery. And he says, The text of the original Constitution of 1789 reflects this remarkable progress. No one in the document is slavery mentioned by name. This reflects the intellectual consensus that slavery was unjust and would inevitably be no more. So this is true. They didn't, li- they didn't name slavery. They, uh, there was uh, an, an effort to not have that language in the document. This is true. Uh, but you can have John C. Calhoun stand up in the 1840s and say the United States Constitution and the United States government is the white man's government. Um, and people would say, yeah, in the 1840s. That wasn't, that wasn't an odd statement to say. This is even, you know, the Bob Elder book, the latest book on Calhoun, points that out. When Calhoun said that in the 1840s, nobody would have batted an eye at that. Of course it is. Of course this is the truth. Nor, contrary to the claim made by Chief Justice Taney, does that document expressly endorse the morality of slavery or the concept of property in man. Well, I would agree it's not a pro-slavery document. It's not an anti-slavery document either. I pointed this out. I did a whole podcast on that, which really upset the people at the Garrison Institute or whatever it is uh, up in New England somewhere. They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that I said the Constitution wasn't anti-slavery and it wasn't pro-slavery either. I would actually agree with Randy Barnett here that um, he says at the end of this piece that it wasn't either. So I agree with him there. And no property in man, again, Sean Valence. When you start relying on James Oakes and Sean Valence, the next step, of course, is Eric Foner. When you start relying on these people to prove your points, you're already sunk. Detail the lengths to which states from the Deep South went to get an express endorsement of the concept of property in man included in the Constitution. At every turn, their efforts were consistently denied by a coalition of northern anti-slavery delegates and members of the Virginia delegation. Well, that is true. I mean, there, there was an effort. And so we had not an anti-slavery document, but at least a slave-neutral document. And the South was willing to live with that. For example, the initial draft of what became the Fugitive Slave Clause of Article 4 referred to enslaved people by the same language employed by the Northwest Ordinance. Persons from whom labor or service is lawfully claimed in one of the original states. As Valence notes, with this language, the slave states' property laws would be respected without compelling the free states to acknowledge the legitimacy of property in man. The day after an extensive debate on the property of this, uh, propriety of this clause, Pierce Butler of South Carolina, <coughs> South Carolina excuse me, replaced the phrase, lawfully claimed, with the phrase, shall be delivered up to the person justly claiming their service or labor. Because the term justly would imply not merely the legality, but also the justice or morality of the claim or service of labor, it was resisted by a coalition of northern states and Virginia. So again, this getting into this language here, and there was a debate about this. What kind of union are we going to have? But the key is that eventually we, they came up with a compromise, and it was thought very important to keep South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina in the union. Right? So they were going to work with the South and compromise with them uh, because they thought it was valuable to keep these states in the union. The Union and federalism made all this work. The delegate who spoke out most vociferously against slavery at the convention was Governor Morris. This is true. Morris was uh, probably the most um, ardent anti-slavery person there, man there, and I mean that in that he said most about it, who delivered an impassioned speech against what he called the nefarious institution of slavery. However, 
George Mason also made a pretty explicit speech against it too, against the slave trade. And what he said in that speech is important. He said, look, you've left the trade open, but you've made it more difficult for domestic slavery to exist. And uh, so you could say, well, that, there it is. You know, you have this, uh, you have this anti-slavery document. It didn't mean that it wouldn't exist. But his critique was that one is the domestic slavery is better than the trade itself. So Mason um, was anti-slavery, but uh, only to a point in his life. Morris insisted that it was the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed. Given that Morris was tasked with writing the actual text of the Constitution as a member of the Committee of Style, it would be surprising if the text of the Constitution endorsed the concept of property in man. Um, we, I, I, I do think we put a little bit too much weight in old Governor Morris because the Constitution, eventually, as we get, was a compromise essentially between Connecticut and South Carolina. So Morris didn't really get what he wanted at all times. In Morris's hands, the Fugitive Slave Clause uh, deleted the term justly from the clause, but the Committee of Styles draft language still began. No person legally held to service or labor in a, one state. This too proved to be unacceptable to the body of the convention when it considered the final wording of the Constitution. The language was, revi was revised to read, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof. In his notes, Madison explained that this change was made in compliance with the wish of some who thought the term legal equivocal and favoring the idea that slavery was legal in a moral view. Under the laws thereof. So again, recognizing that federalism made all this stuff work. Later, the phrase under the laws thereof was key language justifying the position of constitutional or political abolitionists that the Constitution adopted the view of freedom national and slavery local. This distinction was first enunciated by anti-slavery constitutionalist and free soul Senator Salmon Chase in his 1850 Senate speech. Freedom is national, slavery is only local and sectional. When it came to the exercise of its national powers, the federal government was fully empowered to end slavery within its domain. Now again, this was a big debate. This was a big debate. Could they do that or could they not do it? Um, and you're getting into the powers of the general government in regard to the territories. Now, in order to make this claim, you have to say that Article 1, Section 8 gave the United States Congress the power to abolish slavery. Now, you know who said that it did? This is an amazing thing. John C. Calhoun actually said it did because they passed all kinds of other unconstitutional legislation. What's the difference? But, of course, it's not enumerated power, so you'd have to actually stretch the Constitution to say this. It didn't have the power to end it, but it also didn't have the power uh, in many ways to mandate it. Right? And this is where you get into the legal, legal situation in the 1850s in the Western territories. Um, you would, the opponents would say slavery required positive protection. Um, and someone like Jefferson Davis, again, reading Jefferson Davis at McClanahan Academy, would say, well, that's not the case. What you, I mean, it doesn't require positive protection. It doesn't require any protection. This is property. So um, you, in order to make it go away as a positive act, not a, not a negative act, um, so the government can't do that. This was the whole point. This was a battle over the powers of the general government. It's a constitutional crisis is what's happening. In other words, Davis is saying it's pretty much neutral. He's basically making that argument. All right. Well, I thought I could do this in two, uh, two podcasts. I really can't. Um, it's going to take three. This is a long, long essay, and it has so much stuff in it. And so we're going to do this again tomorrow. I'm going to wrap this up tomorrow instead of trying to get through all of it today. 
So we've got three episodes, at least this week, might even take four, to get through this particular uh, this particular piece because there's so much stuff in it and there are so many things that need to be discussed uh, in, in long form. So we'll continue with this piece tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you then.